0: Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, and you're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee. On the RICO Podcast, we'll be sharing talks and discussions from RICO Symposium, SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. We'll also be having special interviews with the speakers themselves, learning more about their perspectives and innovations. Check out the show note for links to our RICO Symposium YouTube channel, where you can find videos of our RICO talks, and at ricosymposium.org for the latest on our conferences and fellowships. This episode of the RICO podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy cold brew systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at ToddyCafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. This is the first podcast and video release from the 2018 RICO Symposium, which was a special one for us. 2018 was the 10th Specialty Coffee Symposium we put on in the United States. So to observe our anniversary, we decided to do some reflecting on where we'd come from in the past decade. As you'll hear a little later, we went through every session and every talk of the past decade to identify all the topics we'd covered. We'll be covering those topics in the coming weeks, but we began by taking the broadest look we could, discussing the state of the specialty coffee industry with a panel of distinguished leaders. To help us with this, we turn to the person who opened our first two symposiums a decade ago, the talented interviewer and thinker, David Griswold. Besides being a coffee visionary in his own right, David is great at drawing out the opinions and intelligence of other coffee thought leaders. We worked with David to identify a distinguished panel representing a diverse group of those who could give us real insights into the biggest issues facing us in Specialty Coffee, where we are, where we're going, and how we should get there. So joining David are Lindsay Bolger, Phyllis Johnson, Teddy Esteve, Christine Kondo Umuosa, and Kent Baki. You can find a link to the bios in the show notes. We asked David to get these coffee leaders' thoughts on the most critical issues in the specialty coffee world. Here's how that discussion went.
1: Thank you all very much. It's, it's such an honor to, to be in this room with all of you. As I look around at so many familiar faces and new ones, as my panel gets seated, I realize that this is one of the most important global rooms in coffee. Inside this room are the people who have the ideas and innovation and, and hopefully the wherewithal to start taking action because we've had a lot of conversation, but we need to take more action. One of the ways we wanted to do that was to provide a panel where we hear different perspectives. And on this panel, I'm excited because we've got some people that you may have not heard from in the past. So, for example, we have Lindsay Bolger, who comes out of a, a specialty boutique coffee company at Batdorf and then became one of the biggest buyers of coffee with Kerr Green Mountain. We have Phyllis Johnson, who is a specialty coffee trader, who has been a a woman entrepreneur who has really dedicated her life to inclusion and diversity. We have Kent Baki from La Marzoco, who represents um, the idea of innovation and new ideas and has some strong ideas about what might be the challenges of technology and the importance of human interaction. We have Christine Chondo, who comes from Rwanda, so we can hear producer voices. Christine runs one of the largest gender programs in coffee. And finally, we have Teddy Esteve from Ecom, one of the global largest traders of coffee, a a family merchant that has been in coffee for many years. And so this audience now can hear some different ideas, and hopefully they'll speak from their heart and tell you authentically about things that worry them, about that they're excited about, and that we can have a conversation that's a little more authentic than just platitudes. As I was coming to the show, I was thinking about a moment. I grew up in Colorado. My dad, my dad was a college professor, and he taught Middle East history. And the thought of a day after he had retired, and we sat in the kitchen and drank coffee, and I said, Dad, what, what do you think about when you look back on your career? What are you most surprised about? And he said, I thought at this point in my career that we would have solved more of the problems. He was working on Middle East issues, and, talking about the Middle East, and he thought, by now I thought they would have solved the crisis and the conflict would have ended. After 40 years, it's still there. And in a way, I think, in this room, we're starting to sort of feel the same way. There's a lot of new innovations that have happened in coffee. Technology's coming in, we're doing some amazing things, and we're going to see so much of that here at Rico. And yet, there's some core issues that we seem to keep avoiding. We'll talk about producer prices. The fact that a coffee producer makes half the income that they made in real terms from when I started in coffee in 1990. Half the income. It just doesn't make sense. And yet, these are the issues that we talk and talk and talk about, but don't take action. So with that, we're going to sit down and have a quick roundtable discussion. It'll go fast as we hear from these people about how they see some of the issues of climate change, of prices to coffee producers, technology, and the like. So as, as Peter said, when we, when we started uh, 10 years ago, we were talking about some of the same issues, um, about single serve and about the ECX and the state and future of coffee. And you can see how many discussions we've had. Lindsay, as you, um, as, as we think about your role and what you've done in coffee, as you look back on the last 10 years, what sort of insights do you have, if you can share briefly a thought that you have from your perspective in the industry?
2: Limiting it to one thought, that's gonna be tough, Dave, but... (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I I have um, been the beneficiary of conversations such as this one that continue to push and engage and probe. And if if there were one salient point, one salient learning, and there isn't, there are many, but it happened here. It happened in this gathering, it happened because Sca has the opportunity and the power to convene the curious minds in our industry, and this is why we keep coming back, and this is why we keep um, challenging our, our frustrations. As you said, you know, why haven't we solved these issues? Why aren't we further along? But if we had not acted 10 years ago and had not stepped up on issues of, let's call it the the, the lean years or um, trying to get consumers more engaged about coffee and um, reach and penetrate um, further demographics and geographies where the, the word of specialty coffee hadn't quite reached those ears. We have made some extraordinary accomplishments because of the curiosity, the intelligence, the passion, and the commitment uh, of the people
3: in this room.
1: Great. Phyllis, what perspective do you want to bring to the group?
3: You know, it just kind of reminds me of what Coretta Scott King said um, in reference to the fight that she and her husband were having. Freedom is never really won. It's fought and uh, earned in ed- every generation. And it's kind of like that for coffee prices and coffee farmers. Um, it is, it's, it's a difficult problem because it's not a technical solution to the problem. It's a, it's a way of thinking. It, we have to change the power structures that exist in coffee in order to change the way it is. Um, one of the things that I think we often forget is that systems give us the result in which they were set up to give, unfortunately, and so many times farmers are on the losing end of that system.
1: Kent, what would you like the audience to know about your perspective?
4: Um, as I look back, I've uh, been doing this for 40 years, and looking at the different phases I went through in my life, the things I remember and want to remember are the <clears throat> the coffee experiences with people. And I think that it's very important and always at risk to forget how uh, human endeavor coffee is all the way from the growing to the processing to the roasting to the brewing into the enjoying. And to people, it's important for all of us to. It's great for science and research and technology, but does that add? To the human experience and maintain that human touch. That's something that really is important.
1: And speaking of science and technology, are we mic'd up on him? Is that, just pull it around? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know, technology now. can be our friend or our foe. Yeah. Um, so, Kent, thank you. Christine, the perspective you'd like to bring?
5: Uh, yeah, so I think uh, I'm going to talk about Rwanda. Uh, coffee was brought by colonialists. Uh, around uh, 1904, you know, uh, farmers, they were, they were not, they didn't know that from the berry, so they could get a roasted coffee, uh, coffee powder, you know, they don't drink coffee. So, and then yet they are still doing a lot of effort on increasing productivity and quality, but still the fluctuation of the markets are still a challenge for farmers. They don't get really any benefits uh, on really, uh, uh, they get like half of, what they are investing on cost of production, and then what they have like a price on coffee is still
6: low. Teddy, your perspective? Well, as, as the trader in the room, I, you know, I would like to bring the perspective of volatility. You know, we, we meet here today in, a, in one of the, let's say, low points of coffee prices, but we all know that coffee is a commodity that works in cycles. And I think that on one hand we have to work better with farmers to educate them when they have to sell and to work on long-term relationships, meaning long-term prices. And the same thing with the roasters, when you see the prices where they are today, I would recommend everybody to buy coffee for as long as they can because we know that this is something that cannot last. because. The good reason is that farmers cannot produce coffee long-term, except maybe Brazil and Vietnam, at these prices. So definitely something has to give, and uh, this is the perspective that I would like to bring. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's delve a little bit closer into the producer price crisis. And, and here's a couple of numbers that I think are staggering. This was at the, um, the Coffee Producers Forum in, in Colombia. 200 billion is the value of the, of the world coffee inter- industry in retail terms. 19 billion is what producing countries get. So we can see the math is about 10%. When we look at those kinds of numbers and you think about what is it going to take for us to actually get more of the chain to, to think in an equitable manner, how do we do that?
2: Well, I think we have conversations like this one, uh, as Teddy mentioned, and we're all aware that the production cycle and is is very volatile, and markets behave in sometimes rational ways when um, supply is limited, and sometimes wildly irrational ways. And if we were able to think of a time when, if we could possibly be untethered from those dynamics, the um, the, the whiplash that we often experience and that leads to sometimes irrational and panic thinking as as buyers, as people in this industry. And clouds are our real sense of what's really happening on the ground. So coffee prices are low. Is there really, is that really driven by the realities of supply and demand? Or are there other forces in the market? We know that there are, that are influencing how the market behaves. But I think um, that's, that's conversations that we've explored here in this forum? Why are we pegged to, to a commodity price? Um, why are prices, what, what is the truth about um, price exploration and the price and value um, dynamics that we see in our, in, in, in our industry? Are there other alternatives? Um, as Phyllis was saying, how do we challenge that construct and create a new way of thinking about how we value um, this thing called coffee?
1: Well, and a few ideas, as you look at this next slide, this is also from a Financial Times article. Three to four dollars, we're all used to the price of a coffee, uh, cup of coffee, and then a nickel being received by the farmer on, on a per cup basis. So some of the ideas that have been posited have been things like um, paying an extra five or 10 cents to farmers, tipping farmers, or trying to figure out some way to get funds into producers. When you look at these kinds of things, what do we need to do as an industry to untether ourselves for, as a specialty industry, from the commodity. Any thoughts from the panel?
3: I'd just like to say that I, I think the solution is going to be varied. Um, one solution that we hear floating around is for uh, producing co- countries to start to build uh, a consuming market. Uh, we do have that in countries like Brazil and Ethiopia. Um, so I guess the question there is how much do you need, need to consume in order for the farmers to see a difference? Um, we, there, there is no one silver bull, bullet because if you consider um, that consume, creating the, the demand within the market, if you don't have high income earners uh, as far as a large percentage in your population, that may not be a winning alternative. So I think that the answer is, very, uh, is varied. I believe the answer will come from those that are most ill affected by the price, and I, I believe things are happening in the producer world, where producers are coming together globally to come up with those answers. And I think that that's where um, the real answer lies.
1: Christine, do you feel like producers um, should be more accountable to develop their own markets for coffee? Or how do you see it from your, your perspective?
5: Uh, from my perspective, I think uh, the voice of producers has to be listened yeah you know because uh, as you said uh, the cup of coffee it's 3 to 4 dollars but you know the producer selling in Rwanda especially selling 1 kg of coffee by 4 dollars you know and then you can imagine from 1 kg of uh, green coffee how much cup of coffee you will get in uh, i understand there is a various uh, costs inside there but uh, i think uh, as long as it's a fair market and then we are bringing their voice to all actors in the value chain, I think that would be really benefit for farmers. I agree with Phyllis, in the producing country, if we can also increase the uh, the local consumption, the domestic consumption, I agree with that. But as long as you don't see any profits on your coffee, you can't really be uh, motivated uh, to drink the coffee, yeah. That's my perspective. Mm.
6: Um, I think it's important that everybody knows here that Christine has developed a brand in Rwanda and that she's able to access better prices, so she's maybe the example to follow here. You know, when you see those five cents to three to four dollars, obviously that is a very big incentive for every farmer to try to look uh, to to improve uh, the price they get for their coffee. And as we were discussing last night uh, during dinner, The merit, obviously, is to the marketers who are able to sell their coffee at three, four dollars. You know, when you're selling your coffee at five cents a cup, well, unfortunately, that's the market, and the market is, basically, the market is the minimum price that you should get for your coffee. It's not the maximum. So I guess that, you know, the incentive for producers is tremendous to try to get, uh, go up in the scale. And if you look at the example, we always compare coffee to wine. Uh, in the U.S. 20 years or 30 years ago, it was all Ernest and Giulio Gallo, and the estate never appeared. And today, you go to a restaurant in the U.S., and you only buy estate coffee, uh, wine. So I guess that in some years, it will be the same thing in, uh, in coffee. But it's something. If, if this difference between five cents and four dollars is not a big enough incentive for producers to try to do something, well, then I don't know what incentive they need. No. Kent, when you think about the final, the final
1: portion of the coffee chain where the barista delivers to the consumer, how much
4: of this story do you think is going to be relevant? Well, <clears throat> the impact on uh, the, the price of, for the farmer, the, their livelihood, their ability to sustain their work and sustain their families is uh, pretty important. Um, A coffee machine is worthless without coffee, and a good coffee machine is worthless without really good coffee. So, um, hopefully we can use the benefit of technologies in terms of communication to educate more people about it's not just about something I'm been focusing on is when people don't, when coffee farmers don't have enough food to eat during certain parts of the years. Yes, that's uh, an effect of the the price of what they're receiving for coffee, but I think we need to continue to look at a holistic approach to the problem, helping people to have food and care for their families as well as raising the price of coffee. Are, um, from my perspective, especially in, uh, espresso coffee machines, without good supply of high-quality coffee, will, will disappear. So it's pretty critical.
1: Let's talk a little bit about supply crisis. Right now, we know the market's at $1.16, and it's at one of its lowest levels, and people who have been in coffee for many generations or many decades realize that the price of coffee really hasn't moved tremendously upwards. But then on the horizon, as we've talked about, there may be a a potential Arabica supply crisis. Lindsay, this is a, a slide that you brought to us from World Coffee Research. Can you walk us through what might be on the horizon?
2: Sure, and when I shared the content of this, this panel with my friends at World Coffee Research, I asked them if there was something that we had in hand that could illustrate what could be perceived as um, some considerable supply challenges. And what's important to understand and what um, we want to emphasize is that this is a conceptual model it's based on information that has been shared at these and other forums, um, data that's been captured and analyzed with, by World Coffee Research um, scientists as well as scientists at CIOT to understand what is the real implication to global supply when you think about those maps that we've all seen of a diminishing um, geography where today's coffee varietals, can thrive and, and be suitable. So you've all seen those maps where the coffee landscape in Brazil goes from here to here. The coffee landscape in Colombia goes is this big and then suddenly it goes, you know, it, it diminishes by half. So what happens to, what could happen, and again, this is conceptual, what could happen to aggregated supply as a function of supply losses, as a function of loss of suitable coffee, cl- geographies as a function of climate change, and if you pace that against predicted demand. So if demand continues as it is today, and this is illustrated by that first line on the chart, if demand continues to chug away at a healthy 2%, 1.9, 2% annual increase in demand, um, and this is a trend line that we've seen and been monitoring since 1990, which is the first point of data, all the way to 2050. If demand chugs away at 2% growth, we will need about 300 million bags of coffee by 2050. That's double the production of, that we see in today's um, global coffee production. If nothing changes in how we grow coffee today, if there are um, regular infusions of uh, renovation and if current trends in coffee R&D and replanting and good agricultural practices can cont- Um, continue at the pace that they are today, where we see um, sort of modest gains some years and sort of no gains in other years, if we continue to see that um, production keeps pace with demand, if nothing changes, there's no climate change impact, we will likely see a shortage, as you see, of supply that could be about 60 million bags by the year 2050. This is if things continue as they are today. Then, and that's still a gap, right? So a 60 million gap um, it, by 2050, is that enough to send alarm bells ringing? Maybe. I'd say that even Brazil can't, <laughs> a good year in Vietnam, can't make up that gap. So if we do nothing, we're likely to have a supply issue. This doesn't anticipate things like how can you get a stronger cup of coffee you know, with 10 grams of coffee rather than... 12 grams. I mean, there's things that we can do to sort of um, engineer how we brew coffee that could possibly squeeze a little bit more out of that current production trend. But then, what if what we have seen to be the trends in climate change actually come to pass? What if we really do see a diminishing coffee landscape as in regards to suitable coffee um, environments, coffee grind environments, then by 2050, this is where this green line chugs in. And by 2050, if what we're seeing in these conceptual maps actually comes to fruition, we could have a supply gap that's up to 180 million bags. So, by 2050. So, that's, that's something to talk about. And obviously, WCR and um, on, on the international global level has been speaking about this, and countries like... Uh, Colombia, Brazil and Honduras, Vietnam have been acting really aggressively to understand the implications to um, climate change in, in their geographies. But uh, what we're not seeing, but we're beginning to see sort of indications that um, there's a, a, a growing sort of global awareness of what could be a looming supply and demand tension or crisis um, on a global scale are actors coming together and rather than focusing on their particular pockets of interest, um, and I'm speaking on the national production level like countries like Colombia and Brazil and Vietnam and Honduras, um, spinning in their own little little orbits, we are seeing through organizations like WCR a more collaborative approach to addressing some of these, these challenges. Um, but we were talking earlier about what if we had this information. Today and didn't act on it and sat back on this stage in 30 years um, with these indicators that we have today and we did nothing. What, what I mean? What kind of conversation would we be having then if we didn't act on what we um, see inferences of today as something that could really be a, a true supply and demand pressure?
1: And you make a good point that uh, we often sort of sit back and wait for somebody else uh, to make the investment to figure it out to. To make the commitments to things like um, research and things like that. Teddy, when you see this and you're uh, being a big global trader, how nervous does this make you?
6: Well, you know, uh, you as, a, as, a, as a trader, I always look at what's going to happen tomorrow. The market today's up 145 points, great. You know, so we have a, ve- a very short-term view of things. And when you see what's happening in today's market and you see that the funds, the speculators, are short one-third of the world crop on a gross basis, they, they are short 30 million bags of coffee. I would not want a cold breathe over Brazil because everybody's going to want to buy those 30 million bags at once and the market can peak like one dollar in one day, you know, because. The financial world, you know, we we make new extremes every day, whether it be in coffee or the financials or other commodities, and the short position that we have in the coffee traders in the coffee funds today is unheard of. So, how it would react to a weather event that they mentioned here, the climate change impact, I I don't know. But clearly, uh, farmers around the world need. uh, uh, for me, this chart, the, the chart that, uh, that Lindsay has put up, you know, at current prices, people will not grow more coffee. That's for sure. But not even in Brazil, not even in Vietnam. They're, they're, they're happy with what they have, but they would not grow more. So, uh, something ha- something, if something happens on the, on the weather front, we, we are in trouble. So that's the difficulty of trading, of trading coffee, you know, that any weather event can really make a very big difference to prices. But, uh, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm very happy to see the optimism of the potential uh, consumption in the world. I'm, I'm delighted, you know, I'm a farmer as well, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> another, another issue that, uh... Another issue that is really facing the industry is that it's, we've been discovered as especially industry. Now, uh, investors have come in, and we've all seen the, the purchasing of companies. If you look at this, um, this is brought to us by um, John and um, his team at um, Rick. What's the team? Premium quality. Premium quality. We didn't put their logo on. We have no logo policy here at Rico. Um, but th- th- what this, what this chart tells us is the 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 uh, looks like looks like i didn't pay attention to that or they didn't (laughs) Uh, except for who have produced the the slide their logo should not be shown um but the point is we're all used to this consolidation and as we look at uh consolidation there's some there's some big issues there's changes in financial terms there's changes in the in the power structure of uh, how many customers people can sell to. And yet, when I look at this slide, these are all the 10,000 smaller micro-roasters where new ideas of innovation may come out. So you can sort of see what it looks like. So where is the next innovation idea? Consolidation, when we look at that issue, um, what is the biggest threat that you see as a a small importer or from the side that you have, Phyllis?
3: It's, it's very difficult to function in, in the import world as a small company. You know, there's just a lot of risk. There's a lot of risk for big businesses. And, you know, you have to have the capital to absorb that risk. Um, there are advantages to consolidation. Obviously, smaller national brands are able to be, smaller local brands are able to be more national and provide research, grow uh, more competition to non-traditional type coffees. Um, but there's also a challenge, I think, and I'm, I'm speaking to it from a broader perspective. There's challenges for organizations who rely on um, membership from corporations, um, and when they consolidate, they shrink, the membership shrinks, the funds shrink. So um, that's challenging, but I also think that there are opportunities there uh, when you have that shrinkage in the model, in market, because you can create something that, that's more robust and something that is more inclusive.
1: Christine, when you see consolidation happening on the demand side and fewer and fewer companies, does that also mean on the producing side there are fewer opportunities to sell to, to customers? What are you finding on the producing side?
5: Yeah, I think yeah, that's true. One uh, uh, producer consolidating their coffee in one container, that helps them to reduce the costs. So it's also a benefit for farmers as well. Yeah.
1: Um, Diversity and inclusion has been a big issue for the association, but also for the country. And as we approach ways to have conversations and open our eyes to where leadership uh, needs to happen, where um, all all communities are included, um, Phyllis, this has been something that's been a big part of your experience in Specialty Coffee as one of the pioneers.
3: Yeah. um, First of all, I'd I'd like to um, give a thank you to the S- CA, RICO organizers for putting this topic front and center. It is something that's near and dear to my heart. But I'd like to start out by sharing um, a quote or a message that a good friend of mine, Monica Ramirez, who helped to found the Time's Up movement, shared with me. She said, Phyllis, women don't need to be empowered. They need to stop being devalued, left out, and oppressed. And so I thought about it and I said, you know, empowerment means for something to rise up in you that you really don't know existed, and now you're functioning in a new way. But to stop being left out, devalued, and oppressed, rightfully puts the responsibility in the hands of those who create exclusive corporate boards, organizations, any workplace that is non-diverse. And I think that's what we really should focus on. I'd like to go a little bit further, David, to say that my husband and I started my company, BDM, our company, when when we had a two-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. We looked around for representation. We looked for people who looked like us. It's normal. It's a normal thing to do. We didn't find them. And there are times when you're in the process of going through life, and you second-guess yourself, and you say, what am I doing, subconsciously? But literally, I would find myself on a flight to Africa doing something, saying out loud, what are you doing? Because representation is so incredibly huge. Um, for those of you who are big time readers, uh, pick up this book by Claude Steele. It's called Whistling Vivaldi. There's scientific research that shows that people who are, represent minority groups who aren't represented, how, how it is almost impossible for them to perform in ways in which the majority uh, group performs. You know, um, we're not going to be measured by our success alone. We're going to be measured by the success, by those we bring along with us, Did we lift as we climb. So I'd like to go a step further and talk about a good friend of mine that I met just a few years ago. From uh, Ministerize Brazil. Um, she's standing there, I think the slide is up. She's standing there in the, gr- in the green jacket and she's embracing her mother, Diane, Diane Vital, five generations in coffee. You would think that she has this huge roasting plant, huge trading facility, whatever. She has work. She has hard work, no hard assets. She is a coffee worker. Her passion is no less than mine. Her passion is no less than yours. Her voice should be heard. That's the answers to the questions that we ask, the answers to the questions that we've asked for the last 10 years obviously don't exist within us. They existed within people like Diane, And I think that as we start to embrace, as we start to think about people who are not at the table, these are the voices that we need to hear. So. I'd like to go on to say that there is an economic reason to include diversity. Um, When I I pulled out the uh, National Coffee Drinking Trends research and the U.S. Census, and adults 18 and over that are part of ethnic minority groups, Hispanics, African-Americans, and Asian-Americans, make up 37.4 million non-coffee drinkers. Now, if you took the number, the age limit lower, you would get 67 million, 37 million people is like the 21st largest country in the world. There's like 200 other countries and entities that the World Bank recognize that have less than 37 million people. As the U.S. becomes more uh, diverse and more younger, younger coffee drinkers consume uh, specialty coffee, I think there's real opportunity. One point I'd like to make is the reason why I uh, actually took out Caucasians in this number is because I feel that Caucasians are highly well-represented throughout the supply chain, within the U.S., rather. Um, Caucasians hold barista positions, they hold executive positions. I personally believe, I would argue the point, that the... Penetration of ethnic groups into the workforce of coffee will increase consumption. I did not drink coffee before I started my company, and many of you probably did not drink as much coffee as you did before you started working in coffee as you do now. Employment opportunities will cause more people from ethnic groups to drink coffee. That is my premise on how we increase coffee consumption among African-Americans and other ethnic groups. Hire them.
1: Christine, being a woman in charge of a program in Rwanda, diversity and inclusion, what are the challenges that you're facing?
5: Uh, So the challenge uh, women are facing because uh, they don't see themselves uh, in the value chain of coffee, you know, uh, because they're always left behind. Yeah, but uh, I think as uh, we are talking and then uh, we are looking for the sustainability and then increasing uh, the voice uh, or the place of farmers, uh, I will encourage uh, all the women and especially uh, the young generation uh, to be involved in the all value chain. Especially, you know, uh, from our experience in Rwanda, uh, women, you are teaching them how to pick coffee. And then the next day, you'll find them processing coffee. So they're like picking everything so fast. Uh, And then as well as for the sustainability, you know, uh, especially in Africa, uh, most of the coffee, because we say that coffee is a cash crop. You know, the cash to belong to the husband, who is the head of the family. So, but as long as we are talking about the sustainability in the coffee industry, so that means we have to bring the whole family together. And then women are playing a big role, you know, because they are the they are the ones who are like taking care of everything in the family. So uh, that's the most of challenge because you are seeing women in the farm picking cherries, uh, making all the good agricultural practices, but. But when she comes to bring the berry to the wet machine, and then you see husband appear, uh, so, uh, and then, uh, so that's why. So uh, for the sustainability of the industry, women have to be a in all value chain in coffee. And then encourage because they are talking, you know? And then as well as they're the head of, not the head of the family, but they're the one who are really close to their children. So and then, so whatever they are doing, uh, if we are talking about this new generation, how coffee will sustain? And then, so women, they are the ones who are really playing a big role on that because they are the one who are lifting all the children at home and the community to sustain in coffee industry. Yeah.
1: Very nice. Any other comments from the panel? I think this is. Um, We're running down to our last topic. Um, Kent, when you think about technology, I know that we're gonna go off in the show, we're gonna see artificial intelligence, we're gonna see machines that do new gizmos and technology, all the bright shiny bells and whistles that you can imagine. What, after being in coffee for so many years and always being involved with building espresso machines and relationships with people, do you have some concerns as well about what technology will play in our lives?
4: I do, Um, and I've voiced this to company. Um, As I watch the Internet of Things, uh, AI, the unbelievable rapid increase in robotics, people losing jobs um, without the people who are creating the technology and without the civilization thinking of the impact of that. That's always been a, a problem when people don't really look at the consequences of technology. Just a small example. Remember when the personal computer was coming out and we're supposed to save us all this time. Uh, I don't know where that time went because I haven't found it.
1: Who sold us that bag of goods? (laughs) Yes.
4: But, uh, it's, it's, to me, it's it's extremely important that within our company, within our products um, that we don't create technology that has the potential to move us any farther away from the customer. I don't want the machine, calling up another computer saying there's a problem. And the person receiving that information doesn't know the name of the the barista or the name of the owner, how's their family, how's their day. That to me, anything that uh, distances the humanity via technology is of concern to me.
1: Thinking about technology in other areas of your work, any fears or opportunities that you see as exciting?
2: Well, I th- think I'm going to beat the um, coffee agronomy technology drum a little bit harder, and that is, um, I th- this. I, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because I think most of the people in this room understand that um, on the R&D on the plant side uh, has been um, has been extremely limited, and I think that that's actually an overstate <laughs> statement. And when we think about the innovations that we're seeing in roasting, that we're seeing in how coffee is delivered to the consumer, innovations on trading platforms, innovations on how we connect buyers and sellers, the area that I think is most anemic in regards to true innovation and necessary innovation is actually on the plant and the seed. You're gonna be hearing more about this throughout the uh, symposium and throughout the expo of work that's underway to reinvigorate and to infuse new thinking and new technologies into the coffee plant and seed sector. But it's, um, it's kind of staggering to see how it's been left off the table when we think about a global industry that generates the kind of income that coffee does and how little is invested in plant agronomy, R&D, and technology. Um, but this is the audience that's going to help change that and we're excited about that.
6: Um, there's a lot of good things that will come from technology and uh, I think one of the uh, the, one of the next steps that we will see is a better selection of the coffee thanks to technology that will be able to deliver, uh, e- easier to deliver incredible coffees. So this is something that is brewing, so maybe something that we'll be able to showcase in a couple of years. But I think that technology will help us improve quality for sure. Help us improve the experience. So, and many good things to come, I'm sure.
3: Technology, I think, um, just allows us all to communicate better. You know, I think for, for us in coffee, um, maybe it doesn't have to be as, as um, high tech as the picture, but it's tweeting, you know, it's um, posting, it's communicating together and building together. It's speaking via WhatsApp to, you know, Christine on the other side of the world. It's that use of technology that's going to take us a long way as well.
1: Thank you. And as all panels, we never have enough time to go through the issues in depth, but that's why you're all here, and then in the next few days, we'll even have sessions where you'll be able to add your input and and good ideas, so we can actually take action and move from a little less conversation to a little more action. And so with that, our time is up. I want to thank you all for being such a great audience and thank our panelists. So that concludes the economics part of our session. And I want to thank the panelists and Andre Ely and Rick Reinhardt for really giving us a lot of information. It's a lot of information. And you might wonder, what do I do about that? And so I'll just tell you what I do personally is every time I see big issues like climate change and global warming and prices that aren't high enough, I think about what's my ecosystem that I can actually touch. Your ecosystem is right here. It's the conversations that you'll have. It's the people you're going to meet here. And I strongly urge that you don't wait for that panacea, for that silver bullet that's going to change everything, or for that perfect study that tells you what to do. The information's there. Start with your family, start with your company, with your employees, start working down your supply chain, and look at the human beings who make up what you do. Have conversations with them. They will help you with the answers that will get us, from where we've been, of a lot of conversation to a little more action. So that's the economics panel, and now they're going to have a couple more little talks to, um, to show you a little more about RICO before we go to our coffee break. Thank you.
0: That was David Griswold moderating a panel with Lindsay Bolger, Phyllis Johnson, Teddy Esteve, Christine kondo Umorosa, and Kent Baki at RICO Symposium this past April. Remember to check out our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk and a link to the speaker bios on the RICO website. This has been an SEA podcast brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. I'm Peter Giuliano. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.